Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Elisa Kelly, and I know you guys are all going to lose your minds today because we have the one and only Chris Brennan here as a guest on Stars Like Us. It is a big deal. Um, Chris Brennan, for those of you guys who have been living under a rock, is the host of the Astrology Podcast and the author of Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune. He is a Scorpio sun, an Aquarius rising, an Aquarius moon, so much fixed energy. My Leo sun is just feels very soothed and comforted right now. It is so nice to connect with you. I'm Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we met once in Colorado in very different in a very different world, even though I think it was probably a year ago almost to the day. Yeah, we should look that up as it probably was exactly a year ago in this like mythical place that we'll have to explain to our children was like a coffee shop where people could meet in person <laughs> and interact face to face. Yes, there there was once upon a time a thing called coffee shops right. for for all future listeners and we'll we'll explain what those are in later episodes, but just imagine uh, the sort of, there were no masks. It was, we, we yeah. hugged, we, we didn't even know each other. We hugged because we, we met on the internet. I mean, it just different times. <laughs> it, was, it was very strange. It was kind of like how, when um, the Pluto and Leo generation described like being hippies and living on a commune and stuff and like the free love of the 1970s, I imagine that our children will think that it was kind of like that. It sounded very loose and very um, open. Yeah, space? and very questionable. Like, who's right. benefiting from this? Who is yeah. it really for? <laughs> but Question. on the terms that we met, it was we talked about um, Colorado. We talked about astrology conferences. We talked about a future. We talked about 2020, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And we both were sort of like grimacing on what 2020 was going to bring um, because astrologers have obviously been concerned about the planetary uh, alignments that are coming up or that are happening right now in 2020 and continuing forward. Um, but we use different practices with astrology. So you, um, so I really, in this episode, I want to highlight and introduce listeners who don't know about Hellenistic astrology to Hellenistic astrology. And then for those who are familiar with it, I really want to discuss your background in it, um, what makes it what it is, how it differentiates from some of the other practices and then how we can, in a thoughtful way, like integrate this into this greater astrological universe that we all live in vis-a-vis -vis the cosmos. So I guess to get started, let me ask your own personal origin story. How did you get started? Um, sure. So I, I started studying astrology when I was 14 or 15, and I was still in high school, and I started reading some books on Nostradamus. And it was around the year like 1999, 2000s. So I was kind of like, the hip thing to do since uh, the millennium was changing and everyone was wondering what was going on with that. And I, from there, got into the study of natal astrology and discovered that birth charts existed and it was way more advanced. Astrology was way more advanced than I anticipated and then just fell in love with it and decided to dedicate myself to studying it from that point forward. So did you ever, when, I, I guess the, the most direct way of asking this is, did you ever pursue another career aside from astrology? Um, no, I was definitely young enough. I didn't have any real career aspirations at that point. And that was the first time that I came across something that I was so uh, deeply fascinated by and passionate about. Um, it was the first time that I felt like that, that I really wanted to pursue something. And then it gave me a reason to want to go to college to like pursue a specific area of study. And I ended up going to Kepler College, actually, which was in Seattle for about a decade. It was offering uh, academic degrees sort of related to astrological studies. So that became the reason for wanting to like learn how to do scholarship and research into ancient texts and things like that. Wow. So since you were, I mean, that, so since you were 14, your entire world has been astrology. Yeah, and I started off with um, modern astrology and psychological astrology for the first four years of my studies. And some of my favorite authors were like Liz Green and Rob Hand and Noel Till and um, a few others like that. And then I went to Kepler College, and the first year is entirely history, and you learn about the history from ancient times all the way up until the modern period. And then the second year, they start doing introductions to different 
basic approaches to different traditions of astrology. And halfway through the second year, there was this course on an introduction to something called Hellenistic astrology, which is like ancient Western astrology. And it was taught at the same time as an introduction to Indian or Vedic astrology. And with my background in modern astrology, I was so into like outer planets and minor aspects and like yods and, and stuff like that. That I really had no interest in studying older forms of astrology. And I thought it was old and outdated and not useful anymore. And I tried to protest and like get out of that class. But eventually they were just like, you know, tough, like suck it up and take the course. And luckily I, I did and I went through with it because quickly within a few weeks I started loving it and realized there was actually something very valuable, valuable about studying the older traditions that was still relevant to us today, much to my surprise. So what did I mean, what did Kepler College look like when you, how many students were there? What kind like how was the institution structured? Sure. So it was um it was based in Seattle and they had some offices there, but for the most part it was presented online and there were students taking online courses from around the world and we would all fly in once there, there were three like semesters uh, a year and we would all fly into Seattle for like a week each semester three times a year for a, a week of like intensive um, lectures and like group projects and for debates and different things like that to present research papers so there was both like an in-person component and an online component um, it was like a four-year they were authorized by the state of washington to issue like a four-year bachelor's degree as well as a master's degree wow um, and yeah it was pretty it took them 10 years to put it together it somehow slid in under the radar and started in 2000 through a weird loophole and then they operated for about 10 years before the state got wind of like that there was somebody teaching an astrology school with like legitimate degrees and they kind of changed the law in order to shut kepler down what was going on in like your house like were your parents like cool awesome you're gonna go to astrology college like that sounds like that's exactly what we expected for our son were they down with it or were they was there pushback I mean, they were just so impressed and surprised that I was suddenly so passionate about studying something, anything that I wanted to go to college and like wanted to pursue these studies, and suddenly was getting very interested in studying things like, uh, you know, ancient history or foreign languages or philosophy or mathematics and things like that, rather than just like I don't know, like smoking weed or something like that. <laughs> but they they were just like, whatever you got to do, whatever you want to do with that go for it and they were very very supportive so a part of the reason i was able to go to kepler and i was very lucky in that sense yeah kepler is very mythological to me i will i love buying um i love going to used bookstores and picking up old astrology books and whenever i see like a kepler attribution i'm like oh like it's very special <laughs> very mm -hmm. unique um because obviously i think for a lot of people and i was actually just getting a lot of questions about this um, yesterday at the time of this recording about mm. where does one learn astrology? Um, right. And I recommended your courses because you have a, a ton of course material in Hellenistic astrology. You also offer certifications, I'm pretty sure, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's, I, there's that as a recommendation, but there's no, there's not like a, is there a Kepler of today? Is there a modern day Kepler? I mean, Kepler, the school transformed and still exists now as an online school, and it's not as intensive and it doesn't necessarily have the same faculty like it used to be, like Rob Hand and Demetra George and Nick Campion and Lee Lehman and like some of the leaders in the field teaching those intensive courses and, and getting to meet with them face to face once a semester. So it was very different and much more intense, as well as like much more expensive. That was one of my main struggles was like affording getting through this because because it was like an astrology school, there weren't publicly available like grants or stuff that you could get to get through the school. So that kept the um size of the the classes somewhat small. But um yeah, Kepler still exists in some form and there's other online schools. And just with the rise of technology and online teaching. Nowadays, it's much easier, and usually the better route sometimes is to find a teacher that specializes in an approach that really resonates with you, and then you can usually study with them, or you can study some of the courses or other material that they've put out. So let's talk about Hellenistic astrology specifically a little bit more. Um, so you, while it was while you were at Kepler that you first were introduced to this, and there you were a little skeptical. You're like, "This is old shit. I want the new modern psychology stuff," and then somehow it 
you know, maybe it was, it's maybe it's the Scorpio Aquarius combo, but it was like, wait, no, this is actually what I want to explore. So mm. is that what led to the research for then the book and the podcast? Yeah. So I just, um, you know, there's sometimes in life when you run into situations where you have a preconception about something, but occasionally if you're forced to like peek beyond your own preconceptions, you realize that there's maybe more to something than you realized or that your preconceptions were misconceptions and, and there was some blind spot that you didn't realize you had. And that was really the instance for me where I thought that without the use of things like outer planets or some of the modern things that their astrology couldn't be valid or useful and that whatever whatever astrology was now was like an evolution of the subject so it had reached its highest form in the 20th century and we had gotten rid of the old stuff that didn't work anymore but it turned out that what happened in the history of astrology the thing that i couldn't account for is that the transmission of astrology from culture to culture and language to language every th every time something was transmitted um, something was lost and you lost little pieces of the system along the way and little techniques not everything got translated and not all of the text survived into modern languages so by going back and starting to translate some of the earliest sources we started finding these exotic techniques that we didn't know existed and that could sometimes do things that were really surprising that we didn't think astrology was capable of today um so yeah that's what started it and i got excited about it and I actually went and lived at a translation project for two years called project hindsight from 2005 to 2007 where they were translating some of these ancient texts and that's how i sort of took it to the next level and while i was living at project hindsight reading these ancient texts from different authors that were being translated i realized that there needed to be like a comprehensive book on this subject to introduce everybody to what was being found and what was going on and to sort of give people an overview because i was surprised that even though the translation project had been going on for 10 years at that point that it really hadn't taken off in the astrological community and people weren't talking about it that much and it's because no introductory books had been written on it so i started working on that in 2006 so if this wasn't being if this if the astrology community was not involved in this then who was really spearheading it so there was it was some astrologers there's a group of astrologers that got together at an astrology conference in 1992 and it was primarily robert hand and robert schmidt and robert zoller and they noted how there the were all these bobs the three bobs or the three <laughs> the, the, the three rabbites how they were oh sometimes goodness. called yeah, yeah uh, for sure <laughs> um so they got together and they noted how there were all these ancient texts lying around in different languages like ancient Greek or Latin or Arabic and how nobody was translating them and how most astrologers didn't know what was in them because they didn't have those ancient language skills to be able to read them. Um, so they decided to put together a community-funded translation project where they would translate these texts and do like quick little preliminary translations and then self-publish them in little little booklets that were like stapled together at the spine and then they would send those out to subscribers so they kind of like crowdfunded the translation of a, of a bunch of these texts in the mid 90s but um and they were sitting around for like a decade but part of the problem is even once you have the text translated it, it's really hard to read them like they're not super um intuitive and they're not super um good at explaining some of their basic concepts so it kind of takes some work and not everybody really had the like mindset to do that and so that's one of the skills that i had when i got to project hindsight is i had pretty good reading comprehension it's like one of the few skills that i've always had since i was pretty young and for some reason it just comes easier to me to like read a text and sort of understand what the author is trying to convey and i sort of brought that together when i started writing my book just um, wanting to collect together all those sources that we knew about at that point. So where did these manuscripts and these ancient texts, what was the context for them? How were, who were they being written for? Why were they being created? What was the sort of, what was the world in which they came to exist in the first place? Sure, so in like the Roman era, there were different astrologers that were like living in different cities and they were sometimes um there were different levels of like astrologers and different levels of society so one of our most important sources was vadius valens who lived in alexandria egypt in the second century and he spoke ancient greek um and he um seems to have had a school for astrologers there in alexandria and he talks about and he dedicates one of his books to one of his students 
Um, but he wrote a series of little textbooks for his students, which somehow survived. Wow. And in the ancient world, book publishing was a lot different. Where if you wanted to write a book, then you you get like a, a manuscript, which is like a piece of papyrus, and you write on the papyrus. And then if you want to pass that book on, it has to be hand copied by a scribe by hand. And some of those manuscripts, pre printing press. Yeah, like over a thousand years before printing press, <laughs> yeah. like like that was how it was done. You just copied stuff over by hand, and through that process for like hundreds and hundreds of years, certain manuscripts like Valens that were seen to be really important or really good were copied more frequently and ended up somehow accidentally surviving into modern times, where there's libraries all over Europe that still have some of these manuscripts. So. Um, like maybe like ten or twenty manuscripts of Valens will survive, and they're not all in good shape. Like one of them, like the first half is missing, or the second one, like a dog chewed the second and third pages. So what happened is in the twentieth century, there were some historians who got together and they saw these manuscripts lying around Europe, and they decided to get them together and compare them and trying to reconstruct what the original manuscript looked like, which is called making a critical edition of a text. And then they would publish that in in like book form, but it would not be translated. It would just be in the original ancient language, which you could read if you're a classic scholar who knows how to read ancient Greek or Latin or Arabic. But it was kind of inaccessible to normal people that don't have those language skills. So the texts that you're pulling from were sort of scholarly in and of themselves. Like they they existed with the with the idea of edification somehow that they were going to be they were teaching other students that they were sort of guides they weren't like dear diary today i observed this in or are they also that as well are they also personal anecdotes yeah i mean for the most part what we have is um introductory texts that were written and meant to be published and passed on by different people like valens to his students and sometimes in valens's text he'll use chart examples and he'll explain this technique and he'll he'll introduce the technique and talk about how it works and he'll say and here's 10 chart examples showing how it works and what's funny about Valens is he keeps using this one chart over and over again and we're pretty sure that's his own birth chart that he's inserted into the work and keeps using Well what's using. his chart would it would it check out in the chart itself yeah, well, it's it's funny sometimes with things like that when an ancient author's chart or text is rediscovered, sometimes their birth chart becomes active again, even though it's been almost two thousand years since they died. Yeah. So is he having what? So actually, we'll come back to him because obviously there's a lot that's going on now with Hellenistic astrology and the work that you have been doing and the astrological community predating the work that you were doing. But now it seems to have a life of its own. Thanks to Twitter. <laughs> I would say Twitter in particular, even though obviously all of the social media, I think TikTok is really going to start. I mean, we're going to see a lot of Hellenistic astrology if we aren't already on TikTok soon to come because right. the younger astrologers, um, the younger aspiring astrologers seem to really be gravitating towards this material um, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, that was even 10 years ago was not the case from my vantage, it seems. Um, right. It seems like these astrologers in their early 20s, late teens, early 20s are just die. They, they love the, this particular branch of astrology. So what do you think it, what do you think is going on? Like what about Hellenistic astrology do you think is so attractive right now? More as, you know, evolutionary astrology was in the 90s. Yeah. Um, I think. Initially, it's just part of it is that it's it represents something new and something unique and something kind of fresh, which is ironic since, of course, what's new and unique right now in this time period is something that's very ancient and something that's very old. So it's kind of counterintuitive. But um, so much of modern astrology over the past twenty or thirty years has become what was initially like psychological astrology and like Jungian um, theories and um, you know, midpoints or minor aspects and some of those things that were new and innovative techniques in like the 60s or 70s became the mainstream stuff and the stuff that everybody learns as soon as they get into the field and that everybody's talking about and sort of on the same page or saying the same thing. So you don't necessarily, nothing stands out about it normally. Um, but suddenly in the past decade or so, one of the things that's new is that in astrology is just rediscovering all these ancient techniques that we lost. So 
things like the concept of sect, which is the difference between day and night charts, which is such an obvious like astronomical distinction, and it's something we all experience on a very personal level on a day-to-day basis. Um, but for some reason, it just wasn't something that made it through the transmission. So that's a concept that was rediscovered and that you can like do something very practical with, but wasn't known about until the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, so there's techniques like that. There's techniques like whole sign houses has really taken off in the past 10 years, which I've been excited about. Um, just because it's again, it's a form of house division that we didn't know we literally had forgotten for the past thousand years. And then all of a sudden we rediscovered that this was the original system of house division. And it's much different than how we're used to doing houses. So I think that's part of it is just there are things that are new, even though they're very old. So let's I get so many queries about the different house calculation systems. Mm-hmm. So what would you say the strengths of whole sign house calculations? W S H R. Right. Um, I would just say that one of the things that I rediscovered about the concept of aspects that's a good analogy between the houses is that um, in modern times we have aspects and it's largely by degree, which is like a square is 90 degrees and opposition is two planets that are. 180 degrees. Um, but in ancient astrology, they had both degree-based aspects and they had sign-based aspects. And they saw them both as valid that an aspect comes into um, being operational as soon as two planets move into signs that aspect each other. So, for example, um, Taurus and Scorpio are signs that are opposing each other and share the nature of an opposition because the qualities of those signs are. Um, contrasting in some ways, with, for example, Scorpio being a water sign ruled by Mars traditionally, and Taurus being an Earth sign ruled by Venus, and just the natural polarity between those two. Um, so, just like ancient astrologers had sign-based and degree-based aspects, um, ancient astrologers also had sign-based houses, which is whole sign houses, as well as degree-based houses, which is like Placidus and quadrant house systems. And it's not that. You only have to use one or the other, but it's that in some ways you have to figure out how to use both of those reference systems and they can help you give additional information that you might not have otherwise. Now, for instance, in my chart in Placidus, which is what I use, and I mm-hmm. I use it, I it makes it I feel like now I'm a boomer for using Placidus, but it's okay. Right. It's we're fine. Sure. It's fine. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry about that, by the way. I apologize I know, to everybody. I feel, that... <laughs> no, it was humiliating, but here we are. I love it. It's yeah. I, I find it a charming system. And I also it's well, one, it's a system I learned on, and I mm-hmm. um, you know, it's near and dear to my heart, but two, I have an eighth house stellium that is also very much i mean i we started this podcast and i'm wearing five inch long skeleton earrings that i had to take off because they were too jingle jangly it's a very important part of my identity not because i wanted it to be but because it was forced upon me Um, do you share your chart by the way i do i mean not like all the time but i have no i have no uh reservations about sharing my chart do you feel like I mean we could put it up here? Oh my the video. god! The video, I, if you want, I'm not. I don't oh, want to put yeah. any pressure on you. I'm just offering because I'm curious as you're talking. I want to see it. Oh my god! It, this is a real mind fuck for stars like us. Yes, okay. let's do it. Okay, August eighteenth. Okay, so <laughs> let me put it in solar fire. So August eighteenth. Happy recent birthday, by the way. Thank you. What year? Eighty nine. Uh, what time? Five twenty eight p.m. I feel so exposed. <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. So is your ascendant twelve Capricorn? That's right. There we go. So that's it with the outer planets and everything and using whole sign framework. So normally, go ahead. What you're you're saying, what planets are in your eighth and placidus normally? Uh Venus, Mercury, Mars, Sun, okay. and South Node. Oh wow. So all of that falls in yes. your eighth house basically in Placidus. Okay, yes. got it. So that's a huge shift. Huge shift. That's really and then I also I moved from having a twelfth house stellium. To a first house LM, which I can handle. I'm fine. I'm fine to get out of the 12th. A positive bonus, bonus argument, bonus point. Your Jupiter uh, in a day chart, and since the day chart would be your most positive planet, shifts from would shift from your sixth house to your seventh house. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put that out there as a possible selling point uh, <laughs> that would be more positive, maybe for some things. And then my moon goes from my second to my third, which is also like delightful because a second house Pisces moon in my world opposing my eighth house stellium is, Mm. you know, it's, it's a fucked up chart. I mean, my fucked up chart 
is my in Placidus in whole sign. It's much more agreeable, I think. Um, but my fucked up Placidus chart is why I became an astrologer because okay. I, I think that it was finally seeing a reflection of the chaos of my life reflected mm. back in a chart. And I was like, Oh my God, like something le can legitimize these experiences that I'm having. So it's the same with my, it's the same with my relocated chart. My relocated chart in Los Angeles, for instance, when I was living there was delightful. It was like seventh house and, you know, like so playful. There was fifth house shit, but it mm. didn't feel like me. And that is, um, you know, that's astrologer to astrologer, just like my personal reconciling of how to incorporate these different houses because mm. it just changes so radically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that is a huge shift for you. And I'm just looking at your Placidus chart right now. And so your Saturn would be in the 12th house. And that's like the ruler of your ascendant. So that's very important versus your um, first house and moving that whole Capricorn stellium there. I mean, you actually have a really good chart traditionally. You have so many planets exalted or in their own signs. You have like Jupiter exalted it's in true. Cancer in the uh, seventh whole sign house in a day chart. Um, you've got Mercury exalted in Virgo in, a ninth, in the ninth house. Um, you've got Venus in its own sign in the tenth whole sign house, at least. And then finally, you've got Saturn in uh, Capricorn in the first house. And the sun. Oh, but she, I'm, I'm like overlooking this and, and the sun. <laughs> Don't okay. forget, please. I am a Leo. <laughs> right. I'm like somehow overlooking. <laughs> well, it's okay because it is conjunct my south node. So we can, okay. it's easy to overlook. Right. Uh, <laughs> I have fallen, I have found my way to find a lot of joy with Placidus, uh, mm -hmm. despite, you know, the, what's working against me traditionally. But mm -hmm. with whole sign, it's like suddenly I'm, I have like, you know, Venus in my 10th house on my 10th house cusp. I have mm -hmm. this ninth house. I mean, I don't mind it. I think it's beautiful. If I saw someone else with this chart, I would say how delightful, mm -hmm. but it's, you, I guess the question is, how do you reconcile when the charts change so much? Sure. I mean, sometimes um, one of the things I found and I struggled with for a year, because when I first heard the idea of whole sign houses before I studied Hellenistic astrology, I heard it like Rob Hand promoting it like a year before I started studying Hellenistic. And I was like, that sounds really dumb and I'm not interested in giving up my chart at all. And what <laughs> One of the things, so I, I put it off for like a year, or I was very against it for a year before I saw how the system worked within, how, how Holstein houses worked within the context of the larger system. Once you start bringing into account things like the rulers of the houses and Holstein aspects and te timing techniques like annual perfections, where you count one sign or one house per year, and just the whole different things, where sometimes, especially through the rulers of the houses, there can be overlapping ways in which the same indications that you're seeing in your Placidus chart can sometimes come up or be echoed in just a different way, but saying a very similar thing in your whole sign chart. And that was one thing I had to learn was somehow that you can have repeating indications of the same thing across systems. So sometimes that can explain why maybe you resonated with something and maybe you haven't lost it completely. Maybe it's still there, but just in a different way in the other system. So that's not always the case, but I just want to put that out there as a possibility in some instances. Um, like I'm trying to think of if there's any strong instances of that in your chart, for example. Um, I mean, you, some of the things that you are resonating with don't necessarily change. I mean, Pluto, we would still pay attention to Pluto on the degree of your midheaven, where we still take into account the degree of the MC, which is at seven degrees of Scorpio in your chart. It's just that it would fall in the 11th whole sign house. So what will happen is there'll be an overlapping or a doubling up of significations where the midheaven imports 10th house significations into your 11th whole sign house so that sometimes there'll be an overlap between friends, for example, or alliances and groups and your career or reputation or social standing. And then the conjunction with Pluto um, is still relevant there as well as like a as a career significator, basically. Or in other areas, like the fact that the ruler of your ascendant is closely conjunct Neptune and Uranus um, means that that's very much coloring your personality and your sort of direction in life, since the ruler of the ascendant uh, is the primary planet that sets a course for the native native's life and indicates their life direction in some ways. Yes, I think that one of the things that well, I had a chart done by 
Robert Hand a few years ago, and mm. I told him <laughs> that I used Placidus. And as you can imagine, he was very unhappy about this. And okay. one of the things that he said to me, which I really appreciated, was um, the relationship when you use traditional planets between um, Jupiter and the moon, and that they basically are in mutual reception. Oh yeah, you're right. So even your, even your moon is actually dignified in this chart. That's crazy. I know it's it's really changes the whole vibe, sure. um, and it's beautiful. You know, I I love it. It's it's uh, it's a wonderful. I I love the transformation of it. I love that it's. A, I love that there are different dimensions to mm -hmm. astrology. Always, you know, I think that right. that's one of the things that is so cool about astrology is that there are so many different techniques. And there are so many different ways that you can take the same data points and derive such different information from them. Um, sure. And I guess, I, I guess on that, um, how do you feel, especially with the access that that people have to all of these different types of traditions of astrology? You know, how much do we need to delineate one from the other? Where can they overlap? You know, an easy example of this, of course, is like, do you use, does one want to use modern planets or traditional planets? Like, how do we, how do we, uh, approach a chart with just, you know, ending at Saturn versus looping them all in? And then for, if we all loop them in, do we also want to loop the asteroids in? You know, there's just a lot of questions. Um, right. ha but how, how cut and dry do we need to be about the different approaches? How much fusion it, is acceptable from your in your perspective yeah i mean I, I tend to be a little bit more easygoing when it comes to that and i think some level of like fusion and, and synthesis and a hybrid type of astrology is inevitable and will inevitably emerge in the next decade or two and that's really part of the calling that we have right now is now that we've revived all of these ancient traditions of astrology from the past two or three thousand years um, what do we do with them and how do we synthesize them with some of the great developments in modern astrology? And I think that's part of what we're going to be working on for the next next little while. Um, but in my study of the history of astrology, what I noticed is that this actually happens about every 200 years. I shortly love it. Yeah, just and it, it actually follows the Uranus-Neptune conjunction. So if you follow the Uranus-Neptune conjunctions, you'll see astrologers do this right around the time that they can join about every 175 years where there'll be a translation project and the astrologers will translate a bunch of old texts from whatever was earlier prior to them. And then there'll be this revival of older forms of astrology, which are then merged or synthesized with whatever the contemporary modern form of astrology is at the time. And then that becomes the new system for like the next 200 years. Uh, so the last time we had one of those conjunctions, of course, was in 1992 and 1993. And that's exactly when Project Hindsight was founded. Wow. Oh, I yeah. just got chills. Yes, I love that. That's um, so the future is, as always, the past. Um, and I guess from what I hear you're saying is that there is, uh, it is acceptable and we should feel comfortable, um, taking this information, taking this sort of this, this ancient, these ancient techniques and practices and applying our modern verbiage to them, our modern, our modern day conditions. Obviously, in the past, astrology, I mean, as your book title, as indicated in your book title, Fate and Fortune, um, it was very fatalistic, previous astrology, Hellenistic astrology is, you know, there was definitely, a, um, it was not as psychoanalytically driven as the astrology of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So how does that, how do we reconcile the relationship between those pieces. Yeah, I mean that's going to be tricky where and I think those are some of the best things about modern astrology that I really appreciate is its orientation more towards and its um being mindful of consulting skills and like how to talk to people and the effect or the impact that an astrologer can have when they say things on a person's life and the great power but also the great responsibility that comes along with that. And I think those are one of the some of the great innovations in modern astrology that I hope to see integrated into traditional astrology as it as it becomes more prominent in mainstream astrological practice. Um, yeah, so that that's that's part of it. Is I think there's going to be different astrologers that specialize in different approaches, and it's okay if a person does want to specialize in a specific ancient approach, and if they 
don't want to do modern astrology or whatever. Like everybody's going to draw the line somewhere different and somewhere somewhat arbitrary in terms of the number of factors and the number or type of techniques that they want to integrate into their system. So some traditional astrologers might say, I, I only want to use the seven traditional planets that are visible to the naked eye, and I don't want to include anything else beyond that. So anything beyond Saturn, you can't usually see it out in the sky through with the without with just the naked eye. So they say I don't want to do anything beyond that. Or for me, for example, I use Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto as well as the traditional seven planets. But for the most part, I kind of draw a line there, and I don't typically integrate um, asteroids like uh, or minor planets like Chiron or Ceres or the asteroid beer or what have you. Like I draw a line that's somewhat arbitrary there. Whereas there's other astrologers that might include. Let's say um, the seven main asteroids, or or whatever number, some core number of asteroids, um, but they might draw a line and not integrate like deep space objects. Like some astrologers are starting to identify like black holes or like the galactic center and stuff right. like that, and having a question of how many of those do they want to integrate into their system. So it's somewhat arbitrary, and everybody just has to make their own choice of like where they want to draw the line, and I think that's okay. The way that I have described astrology and the learning of astrology, at least the way that I have digested it, is that mm. it is like an open book test where it is not about not having the information. It's about knowing how much information is available that you can use to inform your answers. You know, mm. your answers are going to be more comprehensive, more thoughtful, more detailed the more that it's not about, it's not like, you know, the SATs, there's no quiz. It's about knowing where to look and how to look for things and how to critically apply different skill sets. Mm -hmm. In my practice, I will, I really, you know, depending on, uh, as in my consulting practice, I should say, depending on what type of conversation we'll have, I may use the modern planets. I may not. I may stop at Saturn. You know, I think that there's definitely something to be said for folks born around my generation, right? My year when we had that Saturn, Uranus, Neptune conjunction that feels like it really needs to be looked at, you know, when we had all of those three together. I think similarly, we need to like at, in this moment of 2020, the fact that, you know, we have a great conjunction that, that checks out with the traditional, but Pluto is also there too. And I right. do feel like Pluto from my vantage at least, is is definitely kind of like digging this in, in a way that we, it would feel for me, you know, like uh, an oversight to not discuss it. However, right. that's personal based on my practice and how I interpret the different planets. But I know that since you do work with these as well, I've seen some of your, um, your thoughts about the Saturn and Pluto conjunction as well, and also anticipating what that really means. <laughs> it's, it's crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean that was there's a really good lesson about that because I remember there was a traditional astrologer in like January who was writing a series at the time about like how Pluto is not that important and all these astrologers are freaking out unnecessarily about the Saturn Pluto conjunction and then the Saturn Pluto conjunction went exact and like around like January 12th and that day in retrospect we can see um, the New York Times published an article and the headline was something like mysterious virus you know being reported in China and it just started getting real press coverage finally in the New York Times that day. And then just a few months later, of course, when all of the planets piled up in Capricorn and then Mars and Saturn conjoined in Aquarius, that was when it really hit, um, at least in the US. And we got the whole worldwide lockdowns and everything else. So that was a good lesson to me of trying to remain open and sometimes changing your perspective if you run into conflicting data where it seems like if you took a certain placement into account, maybe it could have done something useful or told you something that would have been useful at the time, even if you didn't think so at first. Yeah. And also do not underestimate Pluto. <laughs> that, right. is a, that is a, that is a Pluto lesson for fucking sure. I mean, sure. that is a, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I was really, all eyes were on January, you know, um, and we also had the eclipse happening at, the, I think it was January 10th was the eclipse, January 12th was the conjunction. And it was, you know, and at that moment, there was this tension with Iran and we were, it was, there was also an impeachment going on. I mean, there was right. January in and of itself before the pandemic was like, it, it looked like uh, a pressure cooker. 
Yeah, and then, the Australian like wildfires and everything. Yes, exactly. I mean, and we were coming into as 2020 was unfolding, it was very clear that the and it's an election year. I mean, like that's in and of itself something to be noted. Mm. Um, but as it was unfolding, it was like we was like we just were taking more and more things out of this like never ending um, freaky circus act of what these different conjunctions can offer. And I think that you know what I was really what I in back in before I was looking at the pandemic, one of the things in January 2020 that I was really thinking about was, okay, what was going on during Saturn and Pluto the last time in the early 80s? It was Reagan. It was, you know, it was like the Reagan youth. It was like this idea of neoconservatism that was coming Mm -hmm. through and also like entertainment, uh, politics, fusion. um, And there it was the whole time, the AIDS epidemic. At least for me, it was like just like so blatantly obvious that that was Mm -hmm. a huge that was one of the most significant early 1980s events and tragedies to sweep across the United States. And then for at least for me, it was like it was almost like the writing was on the wall, but there were so many other things going on that, of course, it was, you know, there is this relationship between Saturn and Pluto and viruses. And then when you start to look at that, it's just it checks out every single conjunction. It's like you just go back through time and you can see these eclipses along with the Saturn and Pluto conjunctions, like always seem to line up with some sort of a plague like situation. Um, and that is part of the reason I feel like deny, like coronavirus denial is so frustrating to me is because Mm -hmm. just from an astrological, just, just based on the astrology, it's like, we have these, you know? Um, (laughs) yeah. And there's a French astrologer named Andre Barbeau that like a decade ago, he predicted that there would be, uh, based on those conjunction outer planet cycles, that there would be a pandemic between 20, I think he said like 2020 and 2021, that's um, very specific. On, yeah, it was highly specific. And he, <laughs> he even he passed away sadly last October. So this was like a prediction a while ago, and he wasn't even still alive to see the fruition of his prediction. But and even you know that started to develop at least by the end of last year, by December, and all of that astrology was happening. It still wasn't even evident to us all worldwide until what a couple months later. One of the biggest lessons I've learned over the past two years, both in mundane astrology and natal astrology, is just sometimes. An astrological alignment will happen and something major will be taking place, but you just don't know about it yet, or it's just not visible. And that's true not just in in mundane astrology, like in that instance, but also even in natal astrology. Sometimes something will happen and it, there'll be an important development that affects your life, but you may not know about it until like months or sometimes years later. Especially when you're talking about something like Pluto, which is so slow and it's such mm-hmm. a slow burn. You know, the outer planets in particular are unfolding and you know they are in retrograde for half of their course you know so it's it there's a lot of you know one step forward one step back one step forward one step back i didn't realize until i was almost at the very edge of um my own of this transit in my own chart that i became an astrologer as pluto was crossing my ascendant but Mm. as it was happening i was in it you know so i wasn't blatantly aware of it until I think it got to like 14 or 15 degrees. And I was like, obviously, you know, like right. this is what's happening. Yeah. Um, but that's also, I think, some of the magic of astrology is that it's, you know, we, I, I think that a lot of people come into astrology, if not to learn more about themselves, to try to get answers about the future. Mm-hmm. And my, I guess my eighth house trick for everybody when I have a natal chart reading with them is that we're really mostly going to be talking about the past. Mm. Um, because in order for us to even have any anticipation of what these cycles might look like, we need to know what they looked like before the first time. Um, right. But I'm also with you in being like a huge history buff and nerd and amateur Reddit deep diver. So I, um, I think that that's also part of, you know, that's part of, I guess, what pulls me to the material is it's a tool to be able to um to look at things through different through different lenses of time you know it's a time mm-hmm. travel technique yeah definitely and that's such a great lesson the idea of like look look to the past in order to predict the future there's nothing better to 
anticipate what's coming up in a person's future than just looking at past cycles like their Saturn cycle and seeing every time Saturn like makes a hard aspect to its natal position, like the unfolding of whatever their Saturn story is or how that can, at their Saturn return, for example, set the stage for the next 30 years and how all the themes at their Saturn return then that were the seeds that were laid will then grow and develop as it hits the like waning or, or waxing square or the opposition or the waning square, what have you. Pretty much every timing technique seems to have a component like that where you can kind of use the past to figure out like the trajectory a person's on. And once you do, you can kind of anticipate where they're headed in the future. I have one more question for you. Um, and I this might ruffle some feathers with our listeners. Um, but the question is really how does I would say, you know, my my the, the milestone marker that I use is is Saturn return for really when we have the we're at the fa- we're at the stage in our life where we can really sort of look backwards, you know, and we can say this these are the things that have happened. I say to my clients that prior to the Saturn return, we're reacting and then post Saturn return and during the Saturn return, we're sort of learning how to be proactive. We're, we're defining our own identity rather than just responding to the stimuli and the circumstances. But I have clients that are 20, 21 and not very often, but occasionally I'll have these very young clients and I'll see their like 2005 birthdays when they roll in and I'm like, Oh my God, like I can't, I can't, I can't make you hate your mom yet. You know, you still live with your mom. Like Mm. you haven't, you're so far away from your progressed lunar return. Like you need to just, everything needs to just be black and white right now. Mm. Is there something to be said for the maturity like w- the individual maturing as with the astrology and like i guess i if i wanted to be very controversial like should there be age limits on when we can practice and how we should practice astrology i'm asking you in particular since you started this at 14 when you're that I mean that's that's little toddler age in the eyes mm-hmm. of saturn yeah i mean i don't personally think there should be limits because people can start earlier and therefore you know, there can be a person who's like 40 years old and they've only been studying astrology for, let's say, two years. Um, and just because they're older and have more life experience, their competency with astrology may not be as good as somebody who's only, let's say, like 24 years old, but they've been studying it for like 10 years at that point. Um, you know, although life experience definitely accounts for something and especially the longer you've been doing astrology and the longer you've had a chance to follow your own transits and experience what certain transits are like on a real gut level or see transits happen in the charts of other people, either clients or family members or friends, you certainly gain and grow from that every new experience and observation you make. So there's something to be said for you know, the length of time a person's been studying and sometimes age is a component of that. It's not like a necessary requirement Per se, just because you never know, like who the next Einstein or who the next like Rob Hand is going to be, that maybe got started early and and but but has been but but picks it up, let's say faster. Like occasionally, there's people that just have a good aptitude for it, and that idea of like aptitude as well as dedication is something that I always want to make space for, just in case, because sometimes that can overcome or can trump age. Yes, I I actually agree. I mean, I don't think that. I think that it would be deeply, deeply fucked up to create a um, to create some sort of a barrier of entry based on age alone, because as we mm. know, you know, and a Pluto Leo politician is not going to necessarily have the same sort of self reflection that some of these Pluto Sagittarius, you know, kids on Twitter are already exhibiting. Um, I think that if somebody's ability, if somebody is a young person who's really interested in this material and is willing to deep dive into it, it's one, probably reflected in their chart. And two, it would be such a disservice to then um, deny them the experience of honoring and exploring and validating their own reality through this amazing language. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think that it's, you know, the the approach that I have and what I try to practice is being is just being a very good listener to try to know what somebody could handle at some point in their life 
because right. a 20 year old who already knows that their mom is fucked up maybe doesn't need to get to the progressed lunar return in order for us to talk about that you know um yeah <laughs> and it's tough earlier on i definitely enjoy most of the time it's easier let's say to read read charts of somebody that's later in life who's like 60 or something and to go back because they already know most of the major themes and you're you're not telling them anything that's necessarily new you're sort of confirming a lot of stuff and a lot of cycles that they've already experienced and internalized on some core level versus if you're doing a consultation for somebody that's like in their teens or their 20s a lot of the placements in their chart may not have fully manifested yet and a lot yes. of the major like timing techniques could still be decades in the future in terms of like reaching the high point of their career or having um, things in terms of relationships really mature and develop. Uh, so it's harder because you're talking more hypothetically for somebody that's younger. And there's th that's a frustrating thing about astrology sometimes is you can make a statement about a person's chart or a delineation that can be perfectly accurate, but it just hasn't happened yet. But to the person at that moment in time, um, if they haven't experienced it, it may just come off as like, well, that's a really flaky thing to say because that's never occurred to me. And then, like 20 years down the line, that thing will happen. And then they'll, um, you know, be able to give you credit as the astrologer, but it's a little too late at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, it is, there is definitely some, uh, there is an amazing, um, there, there's an amazing sensation that occurs when you have someone who comes through a few years later and they're like, I was, I wasn't ready to hear it then, but you were mm. so right. right. <laughs> that, yeah. Whenever those come through, it's like <laughs> on <Yeah>. it. <laughs> right. Which is most also of, oh, go ahead. Most of the time, unless unless it was something like not great, in which case you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that you know, it's I I can talk to you, and I hope to talk to you again for for many many hours and many many future conversations. Hopefully, in coffee shops, uh, just like in the past, and yes. digitally too. What are some of the ways that we can connect with you, and we can continue to um, to dive into in a thoughtful way Hellenistic astrology? Sure. So I um, I do my main focus at this point is doing my podcast, and I put out four episodes a month plus two bonus episodes for patrons at theastrologypodcast.com. Uh, I have my book Hellenistic Astrology: The Study of Fate and Fortune, which is a really comprehensive but still sort of introductory text on the subject. And uh, the book is the actually one and only. One it's, and only. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I also, the book is the core reading text or one of the core readings texts for my online course on Hellenistic astrology, which is at theastrologyschool.com, where I am able to go into a lot more chart examples. And I have really like long lectures getting into detail and in some of the techniques that I could only um, deal with sort of briefly in the book just due to space limitations. So I think those are the three main things. And I'm also active on Twitter as my primary like social media thing at this point. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This was been this has been absolutely delightful. And um I can't wait for next time. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you next time, hopefully at a coffee shop here in Denver. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>